Welcome to The Golden Shadow. My name is Aaron Rogerson. And I'm Melissa Pleitze. Today we are exploring the mythology of animals or beasts or creatures or half beast, half man or half beast, half woman or godlike things, things that are not human, but they're living all around animals as far as they pertain to our psychology uh, the archetypal realm, what is the archetype of the lion or the fish or the bird? There's something happening that's more powerful than just a symbol or just an object. Animals mean something to us. They mean something powerful, and that is why they have an important place in our mythology, why many of the stories that we enjoy so much involve creatures of some kind whether or not that's a steed that a hero rides or a familiar, like a animal friend of some kind, an animal guide, uh, a beast that must be slain or some invincible monster from the depths of the abyss that you can never slay because it's part of the cosmic order, something like that. I like to point out that animals also play a really big role in dreams. And I think that's a nice way of connecting that principle of importance and weight that it has in the psyche. Yeah. Not only that you might dream of, say, like everyday animals or like your dog or your cat, but you have dreams of like mythical animals um, or dreams of being chased by something scary. And it turns out to be, you know, like a wild bear or a lion or something like that. So the psyche is drawing upon the archetypal container of animals to express inner dynamics. And thus we see it also playing out in the drama of fiction and mythology we as humans have this really deep connection to the animal kingdom. And oftentimes the animal, at least from the dream work perspective, is looked at as that link to like the embodied instinctual experience of humanity. Remember back when we were animal-like, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so we have this, uh, this way that the, the psyche can weave in the narrative of the animal kingdom and it holds so much depth and meaning for us. Yeah, so we've ex examined animals as archetypes or as uh, bridges to certain archetypes that we can't actually see mm. or make contact with. Um, we can examine this from a sort of evolutionary place. We can understand that mammals, fellow mammals, are often easier for us to uh, form a bond with, perhaps, or interpret as being sort of... Um, maybe welcoming, maybe beautiful, maybe something that can be kind of closer to a companion. And I think that makes sense because we're mammals. Mm. We see baby mammals as being cute. We see, you know, puppies as being really cute, even though they're not human. Uh, kittens are cute. Um, even baby bears are cute. And I think we can still recognize a bear as being something that would be cuddly, like a teddy bear, if it wasn't so dangerous. Mm. But we can understand the connection to mammals. This feels a little closer to home, maybe, compared to something like the spider, which is something that's so foreign yeah. to us. And the fear of spiders can be such an irrational thing. But or like, snakes. Snakes, right. But these, these animals, they play a role in our psychology possibly because they used to be predators. 
of ours. Mm. When, when we used to be tiny mouse-like creatures, the, the really ancient, ancient, ancient ancestors of humans, uh, they might have been preyed upon by things like spiders or snakes or other like creepy, crawly type things. Yeah. And so we have this natural feeling towards mm. them of like fear or disgust or anxiety. Well, it's an interesting point, but it also makes me consider how we find like really wild animals sort of cute and desirable. Like we want to interact with like, um, uh, not that if you literally saw a bear, you'd be like, yeah, I'm going to go walk up to that bear. But in some Mm. ways people do that. If you're ever plugged into like news coming out of big national parks, you keep hearing how once again, someone approached the bison and then they got headbutt and they went flying 20 feet in the air. Um, you know, or in Yellowstone, you have actually, tons of bears wandering around and people are going to approach them so there's this interest black bears black bears not not grizzly bears they have grizzly bears but people probably aren't going up to grizzly grizzly bears bears. but they might but it's a it's an interesting picture in your mind right the grizzly bear on one side which is huge it's got this big bumpy back you know it looks like a monster and the black bear is like smaller and it's kind of cute and so it feels more approachable but anyways my point is from that more evolutionary perspective you think we might have developed more of a feeling of fear of those animals that we find kind of cute like a lion cub or something it's like that will kill you that will still kill you yeah um but we find them so cute and in some ways we like yearn to like have a baby wolf as a pet and then people actually do like they get mountain lions and wolves and then they often end up in sanctuaries because people of course can't take care of wild animals right but that's rarer than finding like a baby spider cute Uh, right yeah i mean there's still people out there a lot of people have spiders as pets but it's kind of what we're, what we're trying to get at, or at yes, least what I'm trying yes, to get at, at least, yes. is that our psychology can, towards animals or towards the beast or towards yeah. the mythological creature, I think, can at least partially be understood from this viewpoint. Yeah, I agree. Which animals seem similar to self, mm-hmm. um, which animals are not a threat versus animals that maybe once upon a time like represented like death itself, like yeah. the snake. True. And so mm-hmm. if we think about this, we kind of get into the, to the realm of the animals as manifestations of archetypes mm. and archetypes also the way they express themselves. Often we want to try and find some sort of symbolic bridge to the archetype. Mm-hmm. And so it makes sense that something like the fox could really kind of be reduced down to something that's like clever Right. Even though it doesn't really fully encapsulate the fox. Right. Or an eagle can be sort of reduced sound down to something that has vision. Mm. Like, is that the full story of the eagle? Um, The lion is sort of being king. Right. Or the, there's some examples, the the rhinoceros, in some sense, the big horns. Like, you can't deny the symbolic significance of the horns. And we can kind of tend to reduce the complexity of the rhinoceros down to its horns mm. and say, what is, what is this archetype that's manifesting? And it's like the same one that like a sword can kind of manifest. So it's complicated here, but there, there's a lot of different symbolism that we're playing with when we engage the animal as an image or as a mythological device. Yeah. Well, it's interesting also because it is embodying the archetypal container so that, 
at least on a on a large scale, the average uh, kind of mythological interpretation of the lion kind of carries that sense of authority mm. and leadership or pride, all of these like powerful dynamics that we kind of see sprinkled into all different stories. Yet, you know, is that built off the nature of the lion it's like well if you watch it you know in the wild it kind of does bring this sense of authority and power and leadership um it kind of sits you know on the savannah seeming as if it does rule the entire land and so you see it within you know hercules fighting the nemean lion or with uh, mufasa ruling the pride lands you have this real interesting dynamic of seeing these archetypal containers express both something that was likely observable to us as humans, you know, the actual nature and character of the animal itself, but then also how we relate it, relate to it, that, that bridge as you're talking about. So again, a good place to start with this is through mythology. Mm. And there's many very iconic, very well-known myths involving creatures. Yeah. And maybe a good place to start is one of the most iconic myths of all time to call it a myth could, you know, is debatable, but, uh, the Genesis story, Adam mm, and Eve, sure. the snake, yeah, right. Yeah. The snake is a very prominent symbol Yes, um, because of the story yeah. and the, you can see the snake in lots and lots of stories and you can mm-hmm. see the snake as being linked to the dragon, um, the dinosaur yeah. in some sense, it's all kind of uh, playing off this sort of reptile archetype, but the snake specifically in the story of Adam and Eve plays a very important role. And the snake is sort of this, uh, how would you say, familiar of Satan yes, or yeah. Lucifer, mm-hmm. maybe a manifestation or an extension of yes. Lucifer. Mm-hmm. And the snake uh, tempts Eve to eat from the tree of, of the knowledge of good and evil. Mm-hmm. And so the snake is sort of this initiating uh, mythological device that brings Adam and Eve into consciousness, mm-hmm. right? And so there's kind of this interesting interplay between like knowledge, consciousness, yeah. the snake, yeah, and it resonates with us. And mm-hmm. you know, it's like you can ask like, well, could the snake have been any animal? Could it, could any animal given Adam and Eve the apple? <laughs> Like, could it have been, let's say, like... Uh, the rhinoceros. The rhinoceros. <laughs> could the rhinoceros be hanging out near the tree and say, hey, Eve, try this apple? Um, it, it could have... I mean, you could have had that. Um, but it wouldn't have worked as well, I think. I think the snake no, no, well, is there the for reasons. The snake is so it, primordial. It it's, it's a archetypal container. Oh, my gosh, yeah. The snake is one of the most potent animal symbols in all of mythology, I would say. Um, that's just the the depth of power that the snake seems to carry and where it crops up. You know, we can think about um, the 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 kind of kundalini energy that is also represented by a coiled snake at the base of the tailbone and, mm-hmm. you know, the sort of rising of kundalini and of shakti of uh, this uh, awakening of wisdom and power and energy at the base of the spine that then kind of coils up in like a double helix all the way to the crown chakra and out. So we see it, you know, within um, other traditions. Um, One of my favorite Grimm's fairy tales is the white snake. And Mm. that's about um, a king who eats 
this white snake each night and everyone's wondering like, how does he know all these things? He like seems to be so powerful and a servant, you know, decides to take a bite of the snake. And when he does that, he's able to talk to and understand all these animals. And that kind of leads him through this quest of kind of individuation and development and transformation. And, but it's symbolized by the white snake. It's the, the eating of the snake that gives you the wisdom to hear the animals, which you can think of as unconscious wisdom or instinctual knowledge, things like that. So you see it in far-flung uh, regions of the world, um, you know, the caduceus, the, the twin snakes going up Hermes' staff, or Asclepius' right. rod, right. also re reminiscent of that power of the primordial energy of the snake. Of course, there's like the Ouroboros, the snake biting its own tail. Yeah, I almost forgot about that. <laughs> so you really see the snake everywhere. I mean, not everywhere, but, right. you know, everywhere. <laughs> so because this is such a, a prominent example, let's pursue it a little bit further. Okay. So the snake, let's say, and mm -hmm. this isn't my theory, obviously, if you're listening, you've probably heard this theory before, but so the, the snake as representative of a predator, yes. a past predator of human beings, let's say, mm -hmm. the the mouse monkey, the, the ancient human ancestor, mm -hmm. uh, the snake was a predator. Yeah. And even today, I believe that like apes do not like snakes. Mm. And when they see a snake, they freak out. Mm. That's my understanding. Um, but if we understand the sort of phenomenology of a predator in many ways, what it represents to us is chaos. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Or uh, something coming to destroy. And so if we can see the the snake as kind of the manifestation of chaos or yeah. destruction or darkness... Um, we can also see it as, as a manifestation of sort of the unknown mm. or the shadow yeah, or the, the, the abyss in some kind. Right. right? But also the hero leaving the kind of known safe realms and having to move into that chaotic space and right. have your limits and your boundaries tested. And through that danger, what happens? Like we grow, consciousness expands right. and it's symbolized by that dangerousness of the snake. Right. So the dragon is a snake, right? Yeah, That's a yes, very yes. typical hero's journey right. uh, uh, beast that must be slain. Mm -hmm. And so within the chaos or within the unknown lies, the transformation lies, the knowledge, right? Yeah. So within the shadow is the path towards uh, transformation, towards yes. higher consciousness. Mm -hmm. And so by engaging with the shadow, you integrate it and you ascend the same way that you might engage the dragon, slay it, find the treasure. Yeah. The same way that maybe the snake is the key to the, the knowledge of good and evil mm -hmm. in the garden. Yeah. The same way that the snake as the Ouroboros is symbolic of the sort of infinite chaos of the cosmos. Yeah. The forever receding mystery that can never fully be grasped. It's it's really interesting. I think we could do a whole episode on snake. We totally could. And I think that'll be true for a few days. I, I, this yeah. episode is kind of expansive, almost like we see all these potential yeah. tangents we could go on. Yeah. We were already talking about like a lion episode right. once we sort of <laughs> found all these different interesting things about lions and mythology. Right. It's because I was like trying to write down what animals I want to talk about. And I started out with the Nemean lion from Hercules Labors. And then it just led me down this rabbit hole of more lions. And it was like, man, we could just do a whole episode on just a single animal. So I yeah. guess watch out for that. We'll probably like do it. The rabbit. 
Yes, you could do the rabbit. The rabbit hole. Yeah, exactly, right? Interesting symbology. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's a good, that's another good example. Like, why does Alice's story, at least in some versions, sometimes it's like, look, it's through the looking glass, but other times down the rabbit hole, which has become such a popular uh, colloquial phrase that we all use. Mm -hmm. But, anyways, you know, there's this uh, feeling of going deep into the underground, into the underworld, yeah. into the lower space that shifts consciousness. Right. Very shamanic, right? Yes. Very, very shamanic. The passageway in the ground yes. that leads to the underworld. Yes. Yes. And that's, that's symbolized by the rabbit hole, you know, and there's a feeling that we don't really know what happens when animals create these burrows into the ground. There's, there's a whole other world underneath the surface of what we're work, uh, walking on. It's pretty fascinating. Okay, let's move on um, before we get too, too tangled up in this. <laughs> yeah. um, what are some other myths we can touch upon? Well, lots of, uh, lots of animals in Greek mythology. You've mm-hmm. got Cerberus, of course, the three-headed dog gatekeeper of Hades. Yeah. Um, and he's actually involved in so many different stories. So he, he kind of represents that more instinctual wild part of, of Hades, um, as like his character, if we were to kind of look at the underworld as comp- is um, comprised of all of these different elements, you kind of have like the feminine and masculine principle by Persephone and Hades, but then you also have an instinctual animal principle that's extremely important so that, you know, when Orpheus goes down to the underworld, he has to interact with Cerberus or when Psyche comes down, she has to interact with Cerberus or when Hercules goes down. So there's a feeling that Cerberus is like the gatekeeper he kind of stands guard. You've got to kind of move through the, his trials or challenges to get access into the underworld. And that is an extension of that greater principle of the archetype of, you know, death or uh, the underworld space. But it's it's uh, symbolized within the, the animal kingdom. Right. Some other uh, prominent creatures of myth, I think, from other cultures. It's also, it's also very interesting to explore, like... Uh, the coyote mm-hmm. in some Native American the trickster. mythology. He's like the trickster. Yeah, shapeshifter um, also often. Right? There's some stories where he's almost like Prometheus. Mm. Like he steals the fire yeah. and gives it to the humans. Mm. Which is like a really interesting sort of uh, overlap. Well, yeah, Prometheus is like considered trickstery as well. So that's mm. uh, that's the, the role of the trickster is, okay, we need to do an episode and just keep on we need to do an episode on that yeah. we need to do an episode yeah, on that yeah it's, but... it's like the phrase spoiler alert it's like every episode we say this <laughs> like we should probably do an episode on this but the but trickster is so good sign the trickster is so powerful as a psychopomp being able to move between worlds which is why it's often a shapeshifter or represented as a kind of like hermaphroditic figure it can be both mm-hmm. a man and a woman or kind of embodying both in a liminal space and the trickster uh kind of coyote also embodies that within some of the native cultures yeah there's like some sort of like shamanic aspects of the coyote as Mm. the traveler between different worlds in some sense like he's in the waking world but he's also in like the underworld or like the night right yeah because it's like a nocturnal creature and maybe that's part of it is that there's a recognition that uh just like the, the the animals kind of burrowing underground there's also animals that are alive at a totally different time of day you know mm-hmm. they awaken as we sleep and they seem to exist in a different world than us right and this connects to uh the jaguar hmm. and a lot of like uh mesoamerican culture 
maybe South American. Okay. I, I don't know enough mm-hmm. about it, but the Jaguar is sort of being like this guardian of the underworld mm. because like it's, it's like jet black right. and it sort of lurks yeah. around at night mm. and there's aspects of it of just sort of traveling between worlds, sort of like, again, like the animal shaman mm-hmm. of some kind. So a lot of the mythology in Mayan culture, for instance, has the Jaguar sort of like the gates of the underworld. Yeah. Like the Jaguar waits there Yeah, and there's, um, you know, kind of like notions of a jaguar representing some sort of omen if it appears or good luck or bad luck. Or mm-hmm. I remember in just to throw some pop culture references around, but in the movie like Apocalypto, mm-hmm. like the jaguar appears and kills one of the one of the men in this traveling party and they immediately say, like, this mission is cursed. Well, like we have to abandon it now. Like yeah. this is a sign from the gods. Like the underworld has reached up and taken one of our one of our uh, men away. And well so anyways, um, yeah, tell us about the lion since we mentioned that already. Well, the lion, um, I do want to do an episode on this, mm-hmm. but what struck me initially was uh, the Nemean lion from Hercules Labor and that it's this kind of indestructible lion. It has like impenetrable skin and it's Hercules' first labor that he has to uh, overcome it and kill it and bring it back and so he's grappling it with with it in all of these different typical ways of like the very active principle masculine i'm gonna shoot it with my arrow i'm gonna try and stab it with my sword none of that works against the lion and you're seeing it as this interesting representation of that wild kind of violent principle in hercules that he has to tame within himself and he has to move into more of a sense of strategy and kind of more of a thinking function while Mm. hercules is usually very instinctual uh is just operating off of like brute force and violence Mm. and anger and he has to strangle the lion and then use its own claws to skin it so it's this really dynamic interesting story that taps you into that wild uh principle of of hercules kind of playing out in animal form and and just as in a general principle of that lion it's it's kind of like moving around the countryside, kind of ruling it in a really tyrannical way because it's so powerful and it can't be killed. Um, and that kind of shows you when there's an unchecked kind of unconscious power or uh, instinctual animal power, like how how destructive that can be if we don't come into relationship with it. Yeah. Something else that comes up for me is cats in mm. Egypt. Yes, yes. And we didn't prep for this at all, but... Um, again, there's sort of this notion of like cats as being connected to the underworld. Well, there's also like a lion headed goddess. Yeah. Sekhmet. I'm probably going to say that wrong. I never get the Egyptian names, uh, pronounced very well, but she's like a solar deity, um, sometimes called like the daughter of Ra. And she's like this warrior goddess and she would act out kind of like vengeful manifestation of Ra's power. Mm Mm-hmm. And um, she was said to like breathe fire or like the hot winds of the desert were like likened to her breath. So you see like this extremely powerful manifestation of the lion within Ra's daughter. But then as you said, there's also this more like elegant manifestation of the cat Mm -hmm. that you also see in Egyptian culture. Right. And a lot of the Egyptian gods is actually a good example that we probably should have planned for. But um, 
they have like animal connections. Yeah. They have like animal heads. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They're often depicted as like yes, Horus. Is right. Like Horus. Yeah, he's a Anubis falcon. Anubis is, like, is a jackal. Yeah, I wanted yeah. to talk about this. Like, what's the deal with animal headed gods? Like, Sekhmet's a lion. Anubis is a jackal. You can look at Ganesha from Hindu uh, mythology. That's a elephant head. Yeah. It's really interesting to kind of see these humanoid. Uh, gods, yeah. demigods. Um, right, it's kind of a different, a different take on things, a different spin. I mean, mm-hmm. You can see also like the Minotaur. Yes, it's not exactly yes. the same. Like kind of like it's a god figure as much as it's sort of like a beast that's yeah. been locked away. Yeah, Medusa also mm-hmm. has got this sort mm-hmm. of like yes snake thing going yeah, on. The go, going back to the same idea of like the snake as being yeah. sort of this uh, manifestation of chaos. But also like with Pan, who's often I think Dionysus' son. That's like a god of wild and protector of shepherds and body mm-hmm. of a man, but like legs and horns of a goat. Um, and then you kind of see like that pan figure moving into more um, kind of the, uh, at least that's somehow went from kind of a Greek mythological space, eventually kind of leading us to like the Satan image as like, <laughs> you know, this kind of goat uh, man you know, you see that, okay. you see it, yeah. that, it's that like one way of depicting Satan. Yeah. Sort of yeah. Like yeah. Goat demon. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really, uh, I don't know. It's, it's really interesting because you move from like the Lucifer figure, which is like this beautiful fallen angel, right. um, to the kind of half goat, half man. And that brings, that instills a lot more sense of fear, of uncertainty, of danger, mm. and all of those other kind of half man, half animal figures do bring that sense of like wildness and unpredictability at times unchecked violent power, like the centaurs, like you have these figures like Chiron, who's like actually a gentle domesticated conscious centaur, but Chiron and like Pholus, those are not typical Often the centaurs are wild and dangerous and destructive and they'll kill like everything in its path. Mm. So you see that image, I think, of Satan as being much more of a kind of collective unconscious imaging of something much more fearful. Right. So you can kind of begin to understand that animals are playing this role. It's like they're sort of part of nature. We're interpreting them often as the guardians of nature or guardian of realms of chaos or realms of death, uh, realms of the unknown, Mm -hmm. but they're not just like plants, right. Or rocks. I mean, those things also have archetypal significance to us. The the mountains are very compelling. Rivers are very compelling. Obviously the ocean is compelling, but we do see animals as sort of these agents of nature, almost like, uh, the envoys of nature, some kind of the messengers Mm -hmm. of nature, Mm -hmm. the guardians of nature, um, because they move. And because they uh, have eyes and they have some of the same features that humans do. So mm-hmm. there can be kind of that personification of nature in the animal itself. Yeah. And so it makes sense that we would sort of um, project that animal archetype that we see in the nature onto our mythology or onto our deities to best express that deep uh nature energy yeah like those deep archetypes so we can understand how compelling animals would be and how much uh they would embody this sort of power that humans often cannot grasp they cannot touch i mean the uh the winged animals that can fly i mean mm-hmm. that's something like humans 
are always dreaming of flight. They're always sort of like pondering the, the, like, what would it be like to have wings and fly. And so you can see the animals also possess this power. Mm-hmm. It's like this secret knowledge that humans have like lost is yeah. often the idea. Humans have sort of been cursed with consciousness, cursed with knowledge. Like that's the Genesis story, Adam and Eve again. Mm-hmm. Like they leave the garden, they're kicked out. But animals still have that knowledge somehow. And it, I think it does tie into this notion of like the unconscious, the shadow is where enlightenment lies Yeah. and animals are in the shadow. They're in the wild. They're in the unconscious. They're lacking consciousness. They're lacking mind in the way that humans do. Mm. So you can see all this kind of interplaying yeah. being um, sort of experimented with mythologically and evolving these stories over time that like best embody this archetypal energy. Well, it's an interesting point when we also consider the kind of development of, I don't know, I would call these like legendary creatures, Mm -hmm. um, uh, unicorns, dragons, krakens. The phoenix. The phoenix. Yeah. These. uh, The hippogriff. Yeah. These like animals. The basilisk. Yeah. (laughs) This is all the Harry Potter animals. (laughs) Well, Harry Potter's. J.K. Rowling is just really smart and she draws upon all yeah, kinds of yes, mythology. Very, very archetypal. But yeah. um, anyways, it's sort of interesting to consider how we take the image of, say, a horse and then build it up kind of grander and even more legendary or even more mythological, even more fantastical. Mm-hmm. So it starts to grow wings or a horn, you know, and then you have something like Pegasus or a unicorn and it that carries a bit of a different tone and flavor than the archetype of the horse. Yeah. It's kind of taking new shape and it's serving an interesting purpose, but is we're playing in that fantastical realm of the psyche. And you see these creatures that have no basis in reality, ultimately, like they couldn't possibly exist yet at the same time, there's like an, an, a numinous quality to it. They're godlike in a way. There's a, a deep mystery from the horse and how that transformed into something like Pegasus. Right, right. Well, I mean, we see the same pattern as, as we've already talked about deities and gods mm-hmm. and celebrities. Yeah. <laughs> you know, this tendency for us to kind of maximize the uh, potential of yeah. uh, some sort of symbol or object that we see in real life is like, we see a human, it's like, how strong could a human be? Mm. How smart could a human be? How mm. powerful could a human be? And we're sort of maximizing those potentialities through deities. Yeah. And there's no reason you couldn't do that with an animal. Yes. Uh, if you see like, uh, yeah. you know, like a, a eagle as being powerful and as having crazy vision and a horse as being strong and fast, um, you might come up with the hippogriff mm-hmm. of like this mythological creature that combines the two and it's yeah. the strongest, fastest, greatest vision animal there is. Mm. I, and another thing that's coming to mind for me is how maybe the closer we kind of burrow into an archetypal structure, the more um, kind of mystical it becomes, godlike mm. it becomes. And you start to, you know, maybe you started at the horse, but the more you kind of dig into it or maybe like allow more of like the archetypal structure to grip you, you might say, that it starts to produce images and symbols that carry an even more godlike quality so that you then go from like bird to phoenix. And it's like, well, what is the phoenix? It's like, that's rebirth. It's like, it doesn't get any more like primordial primordial and powerful than that 
you know, but you started out as just, you know, a winged bird that you see kind of at any time you look out your window. And there's always kind of a sense that the more you're gripped by an archetype, the more, I don't know, kind of disconnected from reality you become because it's so, it's so meta. It's so, it just, it zooms you out or it kind of takes you out of that grounded embodied space that we are on an everyday um, plane and into the realm of the gods. So we might look at some creature like, you know, the Kraken as this wild monster of the sea or the, you know, the rebirth and the flames of the Phoenix as maybe more of an expressive symbol of, of the, the true heart of that, of that archetype. Yeah. I mean, again, there's another tangent we could go on <laughs> as far as like, what is fantasy? Mm. You know, as far as like, what is the archetypal realm that pulls you out of real life? And yeah. is it powerful and healthy or can it also be sort of vicious and, oh, absolutely. uh, you know, destroying yes. if you get too lost in yes. fantasy? Yes, absolutely. Um, I don't know how much we covered this in our archetypes episode, but you know, the arch- archetypes have this myriad quality of potentials. It's not necessarily just positive. It's not necessarily just negative, but it kind of swings between those two poles, creating this dynamic environment where like the valence can shift in all of these ways. But if you're so deeply on one side or the other, you're going to be gripped in a power that is overwhelming. It's like standing in in the light of God, you know, or even in, in Greek mythology, we often see in stories, if a God shows their true figure and a self to a human, that person dies, just like they blow up or, you know, like they're, they're just immediately dead. So there's this sense. Right. Zeus does that a few times. Yeah. Yeah. So there's a sense that we have to be extremely careful when we're playing with the energy of God. So let's try and ground this a little bit, try and bring it to sort of everyday modern sensibilities with pop culture All right. or maybe not even pop culture, but stuff that's a little more mundane. So, uh, Countries, mm. just for one example, countries sort of have chosen animals. Yeah. Like America has like the bald eagle, mm-hmm. like the symbol of freedom. Yeah. <laughs> and it's, it's hard to, you know, really know. It's like, does that match? Like, is America the eagle? Like, does that work? But they chose it for yeah. whatever reason. And then like Russia is like the bear, like Mother Russia, the bear, like, you know. The like, mother bear, yeah. Something like that, you know. And it's like it's a powerful, strong creature. Yeah. And so yeah. like there's sort of this this sort of feeling that like it matches like Russia is like this cold place, but like with like very, very strong people, resilient people, like with an ancient story. And the bear kind of reflects that of like this ancient creature that like survives the winter and like cannot be stopped. Well, it's it's actually really interesting because um, when you said Mother Russia, where there's like, I don't know how much anyone actually says that or if that's just something I that shows up in movies and TV shows. No, people say it all the time when they're like being <laughs> like caricatures of a Russian person. Right, exactly. But yeah. the but the the home country of Mother Russia being connected to the, to the mother bear is actually quite uh, salient to me. Like it, it just makes sense that clicks into place because the bear is extremely fearsome and ferocious when it's in the mothering space. Like if you stumble upon a bear in the wild and there's a cub, you mm. have to be incredibly careful 
of your next move because there is no other point really where a bear is going to be more uh, offensive than when it's trying to defend its uh, its children. So it's an extremely powerful archetype, the mother bear. Yeah. China, you know, has a deep mythology with the dragon. Yeah. I feel like the dragon is all often associated with China, though mm. I don't know how much of that is just sort of like a stereotype that's sort of projected Well, you see it a lot in like, China. like Chinese New Year's parades, yeah, yeah, you know, certainly. like the, the long dragon everyone's like um, dressed in, which yeah. is always pretty cool. Yeah. And like Canada has like the, the maple leaf. It's like a powerful that's not an archetypal animal. symbol. I'm just kidding. Okay. Um, <laughs> sports, sports mascots. Again, right. you know, it's like the Broncos, the Broncos, uh, the Hornets, mm. um, the, uh, let's see, Velociraptors. What is that? I, I mean, somewhere, somewhere <laughs> it is. Um, but the Sharks. Right. The Sharks. Yeah. Um, we, we don't really watch sports <laughs> so much. So we're not doing very good at this, but the, the, the point still remains. It's like, there's sort of like choosing this animal symbol to represent your energy yeah. in some way. Okay. Look, my, in middle school, my, <laughs> my school animal was a beaver and it was terrible. <laughs> yeah, I think that's pretty cool. <laughs> okay. So the rival school that you went to was what? The otters? No, middle school. Oh, middle school. You mean the lions? The lions. Yeah. Right. So there's like lions and there's beavers. <laughs> Yeah. And it just doesn't compare because to me, you can, that animal carries a lot of power. And even when I was in middle school, I was like, that's not that cool. We're like the beavers. It's just uh, meeting on the field of battle. Honestly, beavers but, you versus know, lions. right. But beavers, they stand but, no chance. But it's interesting. So, so like the beaver as an archetype, it's iconic for us. We're yeah. very familiar with like the beaver as this idea because it's it's an animal that builds a house, right? Right. And that's interesting. It, like, it is seems very, very crafty. It seems it like uh, intelligent, indu- industrious. It's like very planning in a way, right. calculating. It's not fun to like a twelve-year-old kid, but as an adult, I, I can know. I can a lot appreciate of kids like it. beavers. I think. Well, I used to think beavers are pretty cool. <laughs> okay. But you, you can see them as kind of having this warm, intelligent hardworking yes. energy yeah. and you could, you, you could understand how, if you had a, if you knew somebody who would say it was like a, a very strong, like extroverted sensing type mm-hmm. and they were very practical mm-hmm. and good with their hands and like building <laughs> stuff, you might say like, yeah, like he's kind of like a beaver sort of like, whereas you might have another friend who's like, oh, like, you know, she's like the fox or something like yeah. that or, or he's like the octopus or something like that. Like. <laughs> There's all these ways in which the, the, the animal archetypes uh, can be mapped onto different archetypes, right? right? And you, yeah. can, you can kind of understand this energy that's coming through that is a little bit reductive, right? right? Like we're reducing things down into symbols. Well, yeah, because that's it's very natural for the psyche to do that because right. within the, the symbol is a gateway to much deeper realms of meaning and understanding. And in the moment, I'm just like, oh, like mm. beaver, that's stupid, but... When you take a step back and you actually explore the symbol itself, you start to see all of these other qualities and potentials. Um, and that is why symbols uh, act as they do. They're just like these condensed microcosms of information and meaning and understanding to us. And so it's not surprising that nations and sports teams and schools, they all choose that archetypal container. Mm-hmm. And I find myself naturally... Uh, kind of 
assessing what somebody's, you know, team is or mascot is. Like I was driving around a different city and drove by a, a school and they were the lumberjacks. And I was like, huh, that's interesting. And I just immediately started thinking about what that meant. At first I thought it was a little silly sounding, but I was like, you know what? Like a lumberjack, like that's powerful. You know, someone who just cuts down trees for a living, like that carries a lot of, uh, insight and meaning to it. So it's really masters of nature. Yeah. Masters of nature is very, very much in relationship with nature. So it's extremely important for us to do this. And then you might even kind of take that into the next step of what kind of archetypal animal container do you relate to yourself? Right. And that brings it back to spirit animals, Yes, (laughs) which is the original idea for this episode Mm -hmm. was why spirit animals? Why why do you choose an animal to be like... This represents me. Yeah. Um, one, one other example I was going to bring up that relates to the idea of spirit animals is like Harry Potter and the Patronus. Oh, right. Right. Yeah, that's so they, cool. They cast a Patronus spell and it just somehow manifests as your animal. Whatever yeah. that is. What is your spirit animal? And here's a spell to find out. Right. And so Harry is like the stag. Right. And Ron is like... The, the beaver? Is, <laughs> is, is Ron the beaver? Is this something like I don't know. Is it some kind of like weasel kind of? I don't know of... if it's a weasel. It's too, it's too on the nose with his last name being oh, weasel that's right. <laughs> Anyways, I can't remember, but um, it's exploring this idea, right? It's like people feel um, an affinity with an animal and they might choose um, an animal they think represents themselves. Right. But that could also be different from the way that other people see you. Right. right? It's like yeah. your ego animal might be your chosen animal, but your shadow animal is the way that other people see you. Mm. Right. And so it can kind of depend. Interesting. Like what animal do you think I am versus what I've chosen for myself? Right. It might be a pretty big disparity. Right. So personally, my spirit animal that I think resonates with me that like I feel like that makes sense like that's who I am and this hasn't always been true this has kind of been like a later thing mm. for me to kind of like step into this energy and be like I guess it is kind of more like me is the eagle mm. is like the bird of prey and a lot of that has to do with vision mm. but also being sort of like far away high in the sky sort of alone not really down on the earth like not down on the ground with other people but far away but seeing like so far and seeing so deep mm. Um, but also being something that can be kind of abrasive or something to fear, maybe a in that predator. way. A predator of some kind. Though I, I, I definitely don't I don't have an affinity with being a predator. That sounds kind of weird. But You said to fear. It's a bird of prey. It's a bird of prey. That's what I mean. Yeah, that's yeah, true. <laughs> Which is to say it has a integrated ferocity. Mm. And I think that's an interesting way to think about these kind of prey animals. Or wait, no. Is that when they're... That's like a bunny, right? Animals that are not being hunted. The hunters. Anyways, they have like this really integrated, powerful instinct of violence and death. And they kind of are higher up on the food chain. And so for us as archetypal containers, they represent something that has that accessible element of that unconscious kind of uh, violent power but it doesn't define them you know the bird like the eagles and just going around like tearing everything up it's graceful 
Yeah, that's definitely not why I associate with the eagle. It's like, yeah, just like tears shit up. No, no, like, but I'm saying any animal, any animal that has an incredible capacity for killing and hunting, like a lion or a jaguar yeah. or a wolf, also has grace and beauty mm-hmm. and calmness and play and, you know, like uh, relational dynamics. So it, it, it's actually a, a quite complex creature. I mean, they're all complex, right? But, Certainly. Mm. And you? And me? Okay. Well, you know, I've always been like a dog spirit person. Mm-hmm. And I remember in one of my early jobs, I was probably like 17 or 18. My boss was like, Lisa, you're like a puppy. <laughs> He's like very happy or easily excited. I don't know. I kind of carry that like canine dog-like quality. And yeah. it's something I've always related to. Which very loyal. Loyal, companionable. Very, um part of people oriented people oriented part of the pack wants yeah. to make people happy mm-hmm. um, a lot of like uh, a lot of love a lot of sort of like agape type love yeah. which is like sort of self-sacrificial yeah. and like wanting to make sure that everyone's okay and yeah. like dogs can kind of feel like that like they're like very generous in their energy yeah, and they, they really seem to be moved by like helping the human yeah. like i fetched something for you like aren't you happy i did that for you yeah i would say in the last few years that's evolved like into a more mature version of like the wolf and we've brought up like Alyssa's wolf jacket or Mm. something like that. But the wolf wasn't necessarily something that I felt as deeply connected to. It's always been dogs. Like ever since I was a kid, like Alyssa, what's your favorite movie? Like 101 Dalmatians, Mm. like just always dogs for me. Um, and something I get connected to or like my imaginary friend was a dog, not a person. Um, so to me it kind of evolved into a more mature archetype of the wolf and is something that I feel very connected to. So I don't necessarily think other people would like look at me and say like, she's a wolf, but it's, it's something that I feel like is a very deep part of my own sort of psychic makeup. And it comes up a lot in my dreams. Um, listen to my Alyssa dream series episode to hear more about my dreams about wolves and bears. And bears, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wearing the skin of the bear. Yeah. It's an interesting example of what we're talking about. Yeah. But yeah, the, the association is clear. I don't think anyone's unfamiliar with this idea of having an affinity towards certain animals and not others. Mm-hmm. Uh, both of us have probably met all kinds of people that have interesting associations with the animals. We know someone who has a strong association with owls. Mm-hmm. It feels like owls are her spirit animal. Yeah. There's like a wisdom and sort of... Um, a grace, a sort of, uh, patience, a kind of, uh, receptive, but like strong kind of affinity towards owls. Um, I'm she's just, also had interesting experiences throughout her life with, with the owl yeah, that, that like bound that, like that animal to making her contact with the animal. Yeah. Actually, like the wild animal can have this like profound effect on you. Yeah. Yeah. And that's another example of like the archetypal power of animals. It's yes. like, an owl comes out of nowhere and like scratches your face and like forever. It's like the owl is this amazing, powerful symbol Yeah. that, you know, it's very different than like a rock fell off a cliff and hit you in the face. Right. And like now rocks have this amazing like archetypal energy for me. Yeah. It's like, well, it's kind of different. Yeah. So as containers, animals, I think that's like really what we're getting at, like summarizing this is that like we've mentioned archetypal containers over and over again, the kind of hook for you to hang all this archetypal energy on. Mm -hmm. That's often like projecting a lot of energy onto a thing. And we are very, very ready to project all kinds of powerful energy onto animals 
as symbols, more energy than they actually maybe quote unquote in real life actually possess, mm. right? Which is why we have like the god animals or these these crazy mythological creatures. And so I think it's something to pay attention to in addition to this series we've kind of done recently, essentially, which is like gods, deities, mm. mother, father, pantheon, yeah. animals, and objects, mm-hmm. right? So there's all these sort of mythological uh, devices yeah. that are emerging in our stories. And they're all interacting in these interesting ways. And what they're doing is they're telling the story of human experience. They're telling the history, the origins of consciousness, and they're telling us what does the world actually mean to us and what is the story that we're living in. If you find this podcast useful, please consider supporting us on Patreon. Go to patreon.com slash golden shadow org. If you'd like to keep up to date with our projects, attend one of our live events or work one-on-one with myself or Aaron, head to www.goldenshadow.org. Thanks for listening. See you later.